Welcome to episode 315 of the Crude Street Podcast. This week we have a special episode planned where we'll be discussing debut novels, first books and fresh starts in science fiction, fantasy and horror. Joining Gary and I in the grocery room for the discussion are academic and critic Liz Burke, who writes regularly for Tor.com and Locus, and whose book Sleeps with Monsters was recently released by Aqueduct Press, and by editor and critic Neil Harrison, who until recently was editor-in-chief at Strange Horizons, and whose work has appeared in Interzone, Foundation, and Vector, and who, according to Wikipedia, is a professional dancer. So, hi, Gary! Um, let's, 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 let's re-examine that last point <laughs> about Neil. I did not know this. Yes, hello everyone. Um, you, uh, so my Wikipedia page was discovered by my colleagues at work relatively recently, <laughs> and one of them took it upon themselves to edit it to reveal my heretofore undiscussed dance career. Um, my friends then noticed that this had been done, and rather than taking it upon themselves to correct said error of record, they took it upon themselves to create suitable, verifiable references for Wikipedia to link to and added them to the page. Um, and so far, the combination is that my father has now seen it and called me to ask, was I aware that my Wikipedia page revealed that I had this uh, <laughs> career that uh, apparently no one knew about? So, wonderful. Yes, that is my Wikipedia page currently. Wonderful. <clears throat> and welcome, Liz. It's wonderful to have you with us. That's, um, I'm really looking forward to participating in the discussion today. <laughs> Well, I, I, it's it, obviously, I mean, uh, what listeners wouldn't be aware of is, of course, you and I have been working together at Locus, as Gary and I do, uh, and it's been wonderful having to be part of that. So hopefully this will, be, will actually tie in, because, of course, you've actually been reading and reviewing a lot of debut novels for us, which is wonderful. Um, I think I have. But what I might do, we'll, we'll sort of go around in order to make sure at no point we actually don't actually overlook anybody, but maybe Gary, just to be really unfair, because I think it's probably fair that when I th- when we throw a kickstarting question out, that maybe one of us is on the spot first. So, Gary, what do you think of 2017 so far, and what do you think overall of the debut books you're seeing published? I'm very, very impressed with this year so far. I mean, I've not read as many debut books as um, it's either uh, Neil or Liz, apparently, but the, um, the the thing that impresses me is that there's a variety. I don't see a lot of trending in one direction or another. We have, uh, I, I, I can start mentioning very different kinds of titles. Sam Miller's Young young Adult, The Art of Starving, is a very, very different book from the one I'm sure we're all going to be talking about, Annalee Newitz's Autonomous. Um, so I, I guess I guess the eclecticism of the of the newer writers coming into the field is one of the things that impresses me more than more than any sense of trending anyway. Okay, and how about you, Liz? What are your feelings uh, based on on your reading about the year so far? Well, um, it's the thing that I only just noticed is that all the debut novels I've read this year are by women. Um, so. <laughs> As as far as I'm as far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm I'm really enjoying the debuts that I've read. Most of them are have been really really good, and like Gary said, there certainly seems to be less a less a trend in any one direction than a trend towards an expansion of the possible trends that you could you know point to and and, and say, well, this is the new big thing. <laughs> Mm-hmm. 
Well, actually, that's There's what just yeah. so much. That's something I definitely want to come back to because it's something that's happened in the past. But how about you, Neil? <laughs> you, I mean, obviously, you've just sort of ended a, a long run at Strange Horizon, so I don't know if you've sort of taken the time to go and engage in beach reading or not, but what's your feeling about, about the, the year so far? So I tackled this by making lists before we started, and mm. we're probably going to come on to some of the issues you alluded to about what a first novel means and what we look for in a first novel. But what struck me was, firstly, what Gary and Liz have both picked up on, that the novels, the, the first novels that I have read and liked have come from a wide range of places and been a wide range of type of novel. Um, I've read four first novels that I would consider you know, really good this year, and none of them is like the others, so that's good. But I was also thinking about you know, this year compared to, for instance, last year, and I was thinking about what the field, loosely defined as ever, um, thinks when it is looking at a first novel. And I was thinking we don't have... I don't think we have, maybe you will correct me, but I don't think we have the novel this year that everyone has been waiting for, as we did, you know, when Sophia Samatar's debut came out or Paolo Butchuglupi's debut came out or something along those lines where, or Yoon Ha Lee last year, where there was a, a novel that we knew was coming, that there was a body work that preceded it and that a lot of people were looking forward to reading it. I think we've got a few where there are writers um, who have some work built up and some portion of the field was looking for it and maybe Karen Tibbeck's Amatko is one of those but not mm. not something that's you know obviously a centerpiece for conversation and nor do I think we have so far maybe uh, the Anna Lee Newitz is it although I haven't read it yet but nor do we have so far the one that comes out of nowhere and blows everyone away like um, All the Birds in the Sky last year or here a couple of years ago you know both of those had a track record before them but mm. I don't think there was a huge anticipation for those novels before they actually arrived and began impressing people so i feel like this year's first novels are a little a little less heralded in some senses than maybe over the last few years is that your sense as well liz um yeah well to to what neil is saying like um there's not there wasn't anything this year that sort of that there was a debut novel that there was that there has really been an immense amount of buzz about the way there was um, about Charlie Jane Anders or Anne Leckie's a few years back although the year isn't over yet so mm-hmm. <laughs> who knows what's what's going to happen before before December mm-hmm. I mean Autonomous has only just come out and there are a couple more coming at the, the end of the year that might get that um, that kind of push behind them, or even last last year, Infomocracy um, appeared to be everywhere. Um, novel length, I mean, I'm seeing a, a lot of buzz in, in the novellas about J.Y. Yang's uh, Black Tide of Heaven and Red Threads of Fortune. But the only one that has anything, that had anything really similar, a similar feel to me this year, was... Ruth Anna Emrys's Winter Tide and Theodora Goss's The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter, but mm. neither of them had the same sort of <clears throat> launch impetus. Mm. That sort of that sort of there's an, amen, an immense buzz leading up to it, and then the buzz is sub- sustained after it's out. Yeah, the, I mean. the Theodora Goss is another one that I had in the back of my mind about. She's written, you know, a number of excellent stories and had an excellent 
collection and there were definitely people waiting for that novel and I'm one of them even though I haven't read it yet but it's really good right. Neil I, well, I'm sure it is her stories are also excellent as they say but it doesn't have that sort of critical mass and Sam Miller again so Gary mentioned The Art of Starving which again Sam Miller has a track record of stories that you know have been very successful and popular but I don't think that that is the novel that is launching Sam Miller to you know, the genre readership, I think that's going to be the book that comes out next year, which is the science fiction novel. Um, yes. The Art of Starving seems to be interesting to, you know, certain group, a certain subset of the readership, but it hasn't kind of broken out beyond that, I think. One of the things that uh, just concerns, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was going to uh, say this is, it, it raises the issue of why we regard a first novel as, uh, particularly significant. I mean, I, th- I think you're right. Sam Sam Miller's uh, work in short fiction is continuing to be important, and uh, probably his novel will be. But, but I do think we put too much of an emphasis on first novels by people who have track records, like like Dora Goss, for example, or like uh, Karen Tidbeck, whose quote first novel Amatka is is really a five year old novel in Swedish, but who is uh, you know won the Crawford Award, for example, for her collection of short stories. Um, there are first novels by in, by writers with good track records. Um, I guess, let me think, one that um, probably comes to mind is... Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of somebody who, who actually... Uh, oh, Mary Rickert might be a good example. Ph- phenomenal... Uh, work in short fiction, and when her first novel came out a couple of years ago, it really did not have much impact. It didn't really change or enhance her reputation in the way her best short fiction has. I think that's true. I mean, you can look back. I mean, to me, the last, not, you know, I mean, the, the biggest uh, sort of debut novel that really took off in our field in the last 10 years in some ways was Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind-Up Girl which caught fire like nothing else in ages. Mm-hmm. And then probably after that was Anne Leckie's Ancillary Justice, which, uh, I mean, to my way of thinking, more came out of the blue than Paolo's book did. He'd had a track record, and it was sort of expected, whereas Anne was much less known, I think, than he was. Mm-hmm. I, I guess the interesting question to, to throw out sort of to, to, you know, to you is this. Is it a better thing, in fact, that we don't have a runaway uh, first novel around and there's room to talk about the variety of work that's being done? I think sometimes what happens is there's a tendency in the field to look for a debut, to get excited about it, and everything else kind of somewhat gets left behind in the discussion. And I don't feel that's what's going to happen this year. I actually think we've seen the heart, heart of what's there. And there's, there's a, not only are there a lot of first novels, I think I tracked down about 160-odd of them, but there's a real variety of strong ones. I think, if I can, um, I think that, that sometimes some years are... are this year there's a lot of really good novels and if they were all in the sort of if they sort of clustered in a sub similar subgenre or if there was only or if, if some of them had a if some of them weren't as as good as they are then some of the others would stand out more but I think some years there's not that there's not that combination of both breadth and quality, and I think that 
that sort of leads to people focusing in on one thing more than another, if that makes sense? I think it does. I think it's, it's very plausible. I mean, my answer to Jonathan's question would be yes and no, because I guess we're talking about different conversations in a way. You know, if you're yeah. talking about, if you want to sit down and have a conversation about the actual kind of merit and interest of specific text, this is a very good year. There are a lot of books to talk about, and hopefully we will talk about some of them in a little bit more detail as we go on. Um, then there is the the conversation that I think we all enjoy, which is a bit more removed and kind of about reputation and reception and position in the field. And I think in that sense, I don't know how helpful it is to not have a breakout. I mean, I take the point about, in principle, you can spread the conversation around between more authors. I'm not certain how much that actually happens. If I look down the list that we've got, for instance, I don't see anything on this list that is necessarily going to jump onto the ballots of kind of popular voted awards next year and have that sustained attention. Maybe the, the Theodore Goss for the Nebulas, perhaps. That's the one that kind of stands out to me as, as you know, having an obvious shot at a particular award. Um, but um, and maybe that's just what you mean by there not being one of the breaks out of the conversation. But in, in that case, then when we come to next, Mar- next March, April, May, when we're talking about all the award ballots of the year, we'll be talking about established writers primarily, if that's what we're saying. And that's, you know, it's a swing and a roundabout. I think it is. I and mean, I actually do think there's a book out there that is going to run away with it. That's my own expectation, truthfully. I suspect come awards time, I think the Dora Goss book will do very well for the World Fantasies and maybe for the Nebulas. I personally will be quite surprised if Autonomous by Annalee Newitz isn't the book that, that runs away with it a little bit. I think there's a lot of oxygen around it, and I think it's only just hit the, you know, hit, hit, hit the stands, and I would be quite surprised, but, you know, we, we'll have to see. I think. Gary? I, I, was, I was thinking the same thing, and one of the things that... Uh, it doesn't really worry me too much about uh, what's going to show, show up on awards ballot or what's not going to show up on awards ballot. The, thing I, the problem I see with, with new writers is uh, getting, as you say, getting the oxygen, getting them read. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've already mentioned is that a lot of the writers we're talking about, like Dora Goss, for example, or or Karen Tidbeck or Sam Miller, have already established reputations. Are there any first novels by people who, to get uh, back to a point I think that uh, you were making earlier, that are simply fresh new names for us? Uh, There's a difference between a debut novel uh, and a debut debut. Uh, Is is there any surprise, are there any surprises in this list, either Neil or, or Liz, of somebody who you really didn't know about before that you think might be becoming a significant voice? Well, apart from Theodora Goss, um, of the novels that I'd read, I uh, and, and Ruth Anna Emery's for her uh, Tor.com short story, I had not actually heard of most of the people that I'd read um, before before I came across their first novels. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us really knew who, say, for example. Um, I don't think anybody was really aware of anybody of, of say Robin Bennis before the Guns Above came out, mm-hmm. or or Cassandra Core before the Food of the, the Gods and Monsters Food of the Gods, Rupert Wong Cannibal Chef. I mean, 
<clears throat> I don't think any of us has sort of really... I think there's, there's an awful lot of, of... I mean, the thing about first novels is that there's always an awful lot of this is the first time we have ever heard of this person. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes concentrating on people who've already got recognition um, in some sense, like Annalie Newitz, um, who's autonomous, is, is, is probably getting a certain amount of attention because her nonfiction has already been quite widely known. Uh, um mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying it's, it's it, I'm not saying it's not a good thing that it's getting the attention, but I think concentrating on people who've got a track record at the expense of, of people who who've only had very small publications or maybe none at all before loses sight of of how healthy it is really that um, that the the field can just that that the entire conversation around the genre. That somebody who's never really had uh, any recognition before then can come and write a, a good first novel and be part of uh, a this sort of a sort of sort of sort of get that that air and, and, and attention, even if it's not, um, you know, breakout success. I was just going to agree with that as well, but just pick up on kind of an implicit note in what I think both Liz and particularly Gary were saying is that we're looking at voices we've heard from for the first time. And the assumption there is that there are going to be voices that we are going to continue hearing from over time. We're kind of looking at first novels as the start of a career rather than, again, looking at them in and of themselves. I mean, I'm looking at the, the kind of pile of books, again, that I've got next to me. And um, I don't know, a book like Aberrant by Marek Sandaka, which is probably the first of many names that I'm going to butcher over the course of this podcast. You know, it is it's his first book. It's translated from the Czech again, like the Tidbeck. It's a few years old in uh, in Czech. I don't know what else he has written. I don't know what else he is going to write. I don't know to what extent we are going to see his other work translated and available to us. So that almost becomes in some discussions a self-limiting factor that, you know, we, we look at first novels, we want to read the people that are going to be important in the field over the next decade. And Alan Newitz is clearly one of those. I want to read Autonomous in part because I have an expectation that her voice will be significant over the next decade. But that is a separate question from what is a significant novel in and of itself. I, I just find that uh, as a, I, I'd be curious to see if, if, if Neil and Liz feel the same way. As a reviewer, I find the most exciting books I get are books by people I've never heard of, and sometimes with minimal useful publicity information about them because you, you, you have no preconceptions whatsoever and can either be terribly impressed or terribly not impressed by somebody you've, you've never heard of. Could you talk a little bit more about the Sindelka uh, novel aberrant because that's that's for example uh, a name and a title which I had not heard of at all until you put this on the list. I can do yeah. Um, so as I say, he's a, a Czech author. He lives in Prague. Um, this book is published by a Czech press called Twisted Spoon Press. It was actually written in 2008, but the English translation is this year and came out I think in either March or April or earlier this year. Um, and we actually got a copy because 
my partner, Nick Clark, had reviewed a couple of books by Twisted Spring Press a few years ago, and they just happened to have us mm. on their mailing list. And it turned up out of the blue, sort of just after Easter, I think. And it's about 200 pages. And I sit down, sat down and kind of blitzed through it on a Sunday. It's a it's very much in the same kind of weird area as Jeff Vandermeer and Johannes in the Salo. It is a mm. trio of intertwined stories, one of which is a murder mystery, one of which is kind of a revenge spirit, and one of which is about plant smuggling of all things. Um, and it's very much concerned with perception and kind of being in the world and transformation into other states of being. There's this extraordinary visionary sequence where someone kind of gets deconstructed into their constituent atoms and then put back together again halfway through. Mm. Um, and it's just, I don't know. It, I don't want to say that it's, you know, fresh because it comes from a country, a tradition that I'm not that familiar with. There's probably an element of that, but it's, it's fresh. The translation is very good. The language and the images are very vivid. Um, some, some are quite strong. Uh, it verges on horror at points as weird fiction often does um but it's the imagery in it has has stayed with mm. me um it's it's a as i say a kind of visionary piece uh and an investigative piece and it all comes together very neatly at the end so i'm hoping other people will seek it out you can get it on amazon i'm pretty sure um but well worth a look at but as i say i don't know how to get a handle on it in terms of this discussion in a way, because I don't know how likely it is we're going to see more books by him very, very soon. I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, what routes, what other work there is available. So it's kind of an orphan on its own in a way. I find that an intriguing uh, sort of sort of sidestep to the conversation in a way. This idea, you know, the, the issue of the orphan debut, if you like, there are a number of prominent cases in the history of the field where someone has come out and delivered you know, a major novel and then, you know, delivered little else later and not been, I guess, in a sense, a part of the ongoing conversation by providing new work, but the work itself has continued to influence others. And there's always space for some of these books to, uh, to, 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 you know, to, to have that sort of impact. Uh, and I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's some people who I do think may well be an ongoing part, you know, just part of the field. Others I'm much let, you know, less convinced about, but not that concerned about because I think that what they've done is interesting enough in and of itself. But, Gary, do you think it's maybe time to start talking about individual books? I think we do, and I think there's one other uh, sort of asterisk i would add to what you just said which is that there there are the debuts that become orphan debuts there are also debuts that are clearly debuts of writers who in other parts of their career and probably in their continuing career are not particularly interested in in science fiction and fantasy in other words a debut novel which makes use of some fantastic um premise uh, a good example uh even though it's not really a novel that's been getting some discussion in the last few weeks, is uh, this book by Megan Hunter called The End We Start From. And I say book because it's not even novella length. Um, And it seems to me as clearly this is someone, it's actually a very uh, beautifully written book about childbirth and raising a small infant, but set in a a fairly standard post-apocalyptic flooded England. I think that in this case, uh, Megan Hunter is not going to be somebody who probably continues writing in this field at all, but might be 
uh, at the beginning of a very interesting career as a mainstream literary poet. Fair enough. What about you, Liz? Is, is there a book you would start off talking about? I... Well, to be honest, the debut that made the most impression on me as a, as a debut novel this year um, was actually Robin Bennis's The Guns Above, because it came to me pretty much out of nowhere. I did not have high expectations for it. And yet, within the first page, it had convinced me that this novel of airships and a, a fairly clear Napoleonic War analogue, mm-hmm. albeit uh, a slightly less competently run Napoleonic War analogue, um, mm-hmm. was was going to be full of, of humour and incident and character. There is a line on the first page. The actual book itself is somewhere at the bottom of a stack, and I did not know if I could find it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't quote it to you, but there's a line on the first page. It's like she had somehow managed to not be on fire. So clearly she wasn't dead. She, her airship had exploded, and, and she was the main character, Josette. And this sort of the the sort of charm in the voice, and the 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 way that it that it that the that the the characterization um, and the that sort of cockeyed gallows humor. It just sort of it, it it really sort of took me aback. It's it's a fairly sort of if it went for the voice and the charm and the characterization, it would be a, a, a fairly straightforward adventure story. But they sort of they elevate it and they make it something that you 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 end up giggling out loud, or at least I did at several points in it, <laughs> while at the same time being legitimately horrified because there are people and they are going to war in airships and basically basically half the characters have survived having five or six airships blown out of the sky underneath them. <laughs> they, they, they join the, the Air Corps. They don't really join... They join the Air Corps because they want to fly. They don't join the Air Corps because it's, you know, safe. <laughs> um, but it's... It just, it just really worked really well for me. Um, is, this, is this the beginning of a series? I there's a second book coming out next year, so it's it's definitely the beginning of of either a, a duology or a sequence. Uh-huh. Um, I don't actually know if it's a series yet. Um, I understand. I have I have the impression that I was told the author had a two book contract. So it's either so hopefully hopefully there will be more books after that because I kind of really want more more really entertaining fun um, is, is what it struck me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other book that I, I would mention, two books if I may, because the other book is Ruthanna Emrys's Winter Tide, which is which is uh, 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 which is using the Lovecraftian mythos but tonally it reminded me so much of Becky Chambers' The, Lo- the Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. It's it's not an obvious compar- it's not an obvious comparanda, but it's it's it is about found family and making your way in you're making your way in the world in in, in a, thematically in, in very similar ways it seems to me so it 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 just works really well um both as a reimagining um of the sexism and racism in Lovecraft's universe into something 
a lot more welcoming and and as a book about coming of age and coming to terms um, with essentially genocide but it's a hopeful book about mm-hmm. genocide which is <laughs> uh, which is really quite hard to pull off <laughs> is there an element with the books that you've mentioned that the fact that they are bringing it sounds like a real positive energy to the kind of storytelling they're doing makes them almost like a relief to read at the moment. To be honest, yes. I I was never very fond of the grimdark trend in fantasy or science fiction. Um, it always struck, struck me as a kind of nihilistic abandonment of of, of actual realism. But maybe that's just because I prefer a fiction that's a little more optimistic. Um, but the fact that, that that I mean, there's another book um, in the list of debuts that's Lara Lynn and Donnelly's Amberlock, which ends in a fascist coup. Um, and while that was a really good book structurally and in terms of its characterization and its writing, reading it in February was kind of hard going. Uh-huh. Well, I can understand that. <laughs> on, 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 in, 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 uh, and reading it, reading it last month might have been even harder going, um, because of the comparanda, the, mm. the the comparisons to cur- certain certain current events. Um, yeah. In yeah, in certain certain places. Yeah. Not to pick on any no. place in particular, no. but oh, we've, we've had that discussion. <laughs> okay, and Neil, Neil, to go around the circle, how about you? Is, is there a book that you would start off talking about as being as having struck you as outstanding this year? I'm going to pick a dystopia just to <laughs> continue the theme. No, I want to be a little bit careful about how I talk about this one because I've only literally finished it this morning, so it hasn't really settled in my mind and. I'm aware that I don't necessarily have the full context to discuss it competently, but the book is Layla by Prayag Akbar, which was published uh, by Simon & Schuster India a few months ago. And this one sort of crossed my radar thanks to Reviewing Strange Horizons by Gotham Bhatia. Um, and he sort of described it as what you might call a locally specific dystopia. I mean, I, it, reading it reminded me of things like uh, in McLeod's The Summer Isles or the book that won one of the SF in Translation Awards a few years back, which was a novella called Zero by a Taiwanese writer called Huang Fan, which they're both about the process of um, the formation of dystopia within a specific kind of national local context. And Layla is that within India. It's set in an unnamed city um, about a Hindu woman who falls in love with and marries and was a man at a time when society is becoming kind of progressively more divided amongst itself, or there's a kind of enforced division from the top with all different kind of cultural groups um, sort of publicly, well, coerced, but sort of exceeding to that coercion to to self-sort, to self-segregate into communities that the the word used in the book a lot is is pure um but rather than being set in that state when it is fully formed it is you know her life as the state develops and the steps that lead to the erection of those barriers and that kind of segregation it's extremely powerful 
Um, it's really very well written. I can very much see it um, getting kind of publication outside India from you know a UK or US literary publisher. Um, and as I say, it made a big impression on me, but I, I'm kind of aware that I don't necessarily have the full context to dive into some of its political implications because certainly my impression from Gotham's review and from what I've read about the author is that he is uh, a, a kind of commentator, a public figure to some extent in India, and that mm-hmm. the novel represents a kind of fictional intervention into Indian politics as well as being kind of a novel in its own right. But I would recommend that people seek it out if you are kind of interested in that kind of story. Um, the, the device that runs through it is that at a certain point um, in the novel, as a result of kind of rising tensions over resource scarcity, there's a there's a moment when things flip and the mother is separated from her daughter and then her search for her daughter becomes kind of the spine that runs through the novel. And so it has that emotional core to it, but it's, it's a very interesting piece of social construction. Okay. Well, I should probably throw one in, into the ring myself, and I guess I would start with what really in some ways is an obvious one to me. Um, I'm playing safe, I suppose, because any time you pick a book or a nominee to talk about, it's probably a fair a fair shot. Uh, George Saunders obviously sits in the world as being one of those writers who's not a fresh new voice. He's got a long and established career as a noted short story writer. His short fiction has constantly overlapped, turned in, uh, tended towards uh, science fiction, well, fantasy in, in some way, in, in various ways. And so when Lincoln and the Bardo was published in January, it was one of those books that was swept up immediately in enormous uh, attention, discussion. It's a afterlife fantasy, I suppose you'd call it, uh, about Lincoln, about his, his uh, 11-year-old son, Willie. It's strange. I think it's maybe a slightly flawed book. I also think that it's probably going to make the World Fantasy Award ballot next year. I feel it's it's that sort of a book. Um, it's interesting, I think, because it's a formally experimental book. You know, obviously, Saunders is very skilled. This is the first novel he's written, obviously. But he's really played with it in a really unexpected sort of a way, at least to me. And I found it, yeah, really rewarding. And the kind of book that I've been thinking about over and over through the year, without coming, without really coming down on the, on you know whether I think it's actually a hundred percent successful or not. I do. I, I've quibbles with it, but I think it's one of those books that's really rewarding. So. I would agree with that. Uh, I think trying to juggle hun- literally hundreds of voices um, in that novel. I gather the audio book version of it with literally hundreds of actors is something to behold. But what impresses me when someone, uh, and again, I, I, I don't like to reinforce this inside and outside the field dichotomy, but too often when someone who is not um, consciously a fantasy writer uh, enters fantasy territory becomes a convenient metaphor. There's, there's no consistent working out of how this, uh, in this case, this posthumous world um, exists. And I think that uh, if you put together what... Saunders has done, he did go to the trouble of working this out. And that's that always impresses me when a mainstream writer works out the fantasy with some degree of logic. And uh, 
sometimes they don't. Victor Laval does this. Uh, it's not his first novel, but he's he's done this consistently in his, in, in his fiction. Uh, so I think to, the, the consideration of something like that for the World Fantasy Award is, is not unreasonable. Whereas in other examples, uh, you might have, for example, a dystopian setting, which seems to be there simply because it's convenient, it's uh, a way of making the characters miserable, and it's it's the latest thing. <laughs> okay, Gary, well, since we're, we're going around a few times, maybe, what would you, you pick next off the rank after the, 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 the mid-length novelette you've mentioned already? Um... Well, let's, let's 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 go into your home territory for a minute because uh, again, one of these writers who had a substantial reputation uh, and had her first science fiction novel out this year was Cat Sparks with Lotus Blue, uh, which I thought was a lot of fun. It looked at first very much uh, uh, part of the kind of George Miller post-apocalyptic Australia, but again, uh, once I got through the once I got into the novel, there was a lot of backstory worked out in much more detail um, than than I was expecting, I guess. In other words, it was a more purely science fictional novel uh, than it was what I consider the convenient dystopian novel. Okay. Well, I certainly know that uh, it ties in with a lot with a PhD that, that's, that Cat Sparks is doing on uh, climate fiction and dystopia so i mean I, and i would second you i mean although i am deeply compromised because she's a close friend i would second second your recommendation for it how about you liz what would you you know turn, turn to next well to be honest i haven't actually been been talking about these books in any list of that's of, fine of preference because they're all really different and they're all really really good but one what sort of I mean I've also read Lotus Blue and it's it's really interesting even if I don't think it's entirely successful it's ambitious um but <clears throat> I'm actually quite interested in, in in a couple of books that haven't come out yet um in uh, one of them in part because it seems it seems to be part of a, a trend not just in debut novels that I've noticed but in, in other books, Barbary Station by Ori Stearns um, which is set in the future solar system and it has, apparently it has pirates, I haven't read it yet I'm looking forward mm. to it, but it has pirates and a mad AI and 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 it seems that the advance that the that what I've heard about it suggests that it's it's kind of an adventure story um, in in this sort of a space opera adventure that that deals with sort of ideas of of AI and, and stuff like that, which seems that and it seems seems that it might be fitting into the trend that that was started with that sort of well not started with Unlucky but sort of came to came to prominence that way um, and it's I mean I've seen a couple of other books in the recent past that are also sort of engaging more in telling big canvas space opera stories in the, in the solar system I mean like the Cory the books and 
um, the book that's that's coming out by Tim Pratt in November, The Wrong Stars. And it's sort of interesting to see that being taken up in in a debut because it sort of reinforces my idea that this is that this is going to be that this is this is the the vampires of today. This is the thing that is mm-hmm. that is that is that is um, that so many people are finding exciting. Um, but speaking of vampires, I mean Vivian Shaw's strange practice at a Orbit was. Okay. I'm I'm hopping all over the place because there are too many there are there, there are. are too many books and too many things to think about. Um, well, then let me Vivian ask you a question. Let me ask you a question uh, just quickly about about something you said about the Cat Sparks book. Is it, it actually sort of ties in? How important do you think it is that a debut novel be completely successful? Is it enough? And I mean, I tend to think just to sort of. A foreshadow that I think it is. Is it enough that it is uh, ambitious, that it, it attempts something interesting, or or for it to be worthwhile for us, you know, to look at? Does it have to actually be completely successful in and of itself? Do you think? Well, most books aren't completely successful well, no. in and of themselves. Um, the the thing. I sometimes think it's that a an ambitious failure is more interesting than a an unambitious success. But but of course, an um, uh, uh, something that is ambitious and is successful, and most of what it's doing is 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 definitely more 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 pleasing to read. It's it's sort of um, it's sort of like this sort of aesthetic experience of it all comes together um, like really well like a really well done like a really well done like any sort of really well done art um, but in Lotus Blue's case I mean the thing that, that that struck me that I think most debut novels which are ambitious fall down on is that structurally it's a little bit broken um, mm-hmm. Structurally, a lot of debut novels are a little bit broken. Nikki Drayden's *The Prey of Gods* is is really fun and has many really really great ideas in it. But structurally, it's it's structurally and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't make all its pieces fit in in an order that makes things come together that makes it seem like it all comes together smoothly and naturally. Um, and it's quite ra- it's it's quite rare to find a debut novel that actually does that really well. Um, and even many mid-career novels are a little bit <laughs> are a little bit well. Well, it's good enough, you know. It 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 fits together well enough, um, unless they're they're working to a unless you know unless you know it's it's a it's a pattern like a like you know a thriller or a mystery. Yeah. But if they're trying in a more ambitious structure uh, or or more ambitious, um, or combining more modes, um, for example, the fantastic and the science fictional at once, then it's then it's a lot harder to bring that all together really smoothly. Yeah. Um, strange to, to talk about to talk about to mention strange practice. Um, it's not structurally ambitious, and it's not it's not enormously ambitious as a book, but. It's telling a really fun vampire story um, with a. It's it's sort of in the mode of 
the doctor a doctor gets involved in a mystery and and is really involved in the mystery because well they're her patients um, and she wants people to stop hurting her patients <laughs> um, style style of thing um, and but things don't have to be um, ambitious to be really well done I think. I mean, the strange case of the alchemist's daughter is is structurally ambitious, and it's really well done. Um, I'll get around to it. I'll get around to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to say, I I would. You know, I mean, what you're saying, Jonathan. I mean, it's 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 like um, things. There's there's a. I think there's a. I mean, we 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 valorize. I think ambition sometimes. We valorize things that are new and shiny and stuff that we haven't really seen very, done very often before because we're critics and we're jaded. Mm. Yeah, that's exactly that, that, what I was going to say. I'm a, I am a total sucker for an ambitious failure and that's, I think, partly because I'm someone who reads a lot and as you know, when you read the amount that we do, anything that steps outside that is going to stand out a little bit. I wouldn't say that Aberrant has the most perfect structure in the world, but it is you know, kind of fresh in, in the way that it, it approaches it. And so I will now, if it's my turn, yeah. I think it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I will now mention several books fairly quickly in an attempt to respond to several points that were made on the last round. And then I think you should talk about Autonomous because you've mentioned it several times and I haven't read it, so I can't. <laughs> um, but so first thing, on, on the topic of kind of ambitious failure versus um, ambitious success, I will mention Amatka by Karen Tidbeck, which I thought was an ambitious success and almost partly for that reason has slid away from me slightly. It's a very well done, again, dystopian novel. It's more clearly science fictional than I was necessarily expecting from her debut. It's set in a colony um, or on a planet on which there are a number of colonies uh, where there's something metaphysically strange um, about the organic material on the planet and it responds to force of thought and language and is kept in shape by language. And Tibet uses this to talk about, you know, the construction of um, oppressive societies and the control of thought and the control of expression in a way that I thought actually chimed really interestingly with um, Nine Fox Gambit, you know, Lee's novel mm. from last year, which does the same thing at the level of thought rather than language, but is the same sort of um, constraint over what is possible. And, it's an interesting contrast to me because, you know, Tibbeck uses this quite standard in some ways dystopian structure with the protagonist move, moving through the bureaucratic dystopia and kind of uncovering reality about it. And Yunha Lee also uses a quite standard military SF structure. Um, mm-hmm. And it is interesting to me that Nine Fox Gambit is the one that has stuck with me a little bit more. And I kind of keep wanting to dig into that and what that says about me. Very quickly, two other things before an jumps in. When you were talking about George Saunders, I haven't read that book yet, um, partly because his short fiction is a little bit hit and miss for me, to be honest. But the, you know, that has had a great deal of recognition and success from all corners, and he's currently on the Man Booker shortlist. The other book that is there that is of great interest, I think, is a book called Exit West by Mohsin Hamid, um, which is outside of the remit of this discussion because it is not a first novel. It's his first novel, as far as I'm aware, that contains any element of the fantastic, but it's not... You know, even though George Saunders is a first novel, Mawson Hamid has a similar length of career, but because he's been writing other novels, when we were putting together the list for this, it wasn't one of the ones that falls into that room. But I do want to mention it because 
it chimes with what Gary was saying about kind of working out the fantasy underpinnings. The story is that it's about a couple in an unnamed city somewhere in the Middle East or um, South Asia, a little bit ambiguous. And their city um, becomes the epicenter of an armed conflict and things gradually become worse. And portals begin appearing indoors. You can go through a door and appear somewhere else in the world. And at first these are controlled by traffickers, but gradually um, they become more common and people become kind of moving in a, a more uh, sustained a massive way and you know you think at first this is a you know, very nice metaphor for migration but what one of the things that's really interesting about it is he kind of extrapolates it is an extrapolative fantasy he, he thinks about what would happen if these portals were occurring more and more frequently and what that displacement would might look like in the countries where these people arrive in a way that is obviously resonant with but distinct from the migration crisis that is you know currently going on around the world and it's a really nicely done book and i kind of strongly recommend that and then just to finish off when this is talking about you know debuts that aren't out yet that we're looking forward to i do want to mention um an unkindness of ghosts by rivers solomon which i think is just out this week um because i read the kindle sample and that looks to be a very interesting generation starship novel you know the first the sample that you get is very short first chapter and part of a second chapter and in the space of that you have set up quite a a technical approach to the generation starship and also a very complex social system with you know i think thousands of different stratas that are mentioned and obviously very interesting things going on with um gender and social setup in a variety of those different societies so i'm looking forward to getting hold of the full version of that and reading that Excellent. Well, I might actually dive in then on the, the book you mentioned, Autonomous. We've all mentioned it. Uh, I've read it. I know Gary's read it. I think you've read it, Liz. Mm. Um, I and, have not yet. Okay. Well, then I, I'm not. I'm, I'll try to try to do the not spoiling it. Then I have to say, it's in my wheelhouse because this is for for my money a modern 21st century take on a late 20th century Bruce Sterling novel. That's the territory it sits in most to me. It starts off like Breaking Bad meets Jules Verne. It's the story of a uh, anti-patent scientist who has decided to go rogue and to uh, clone uh, met, you know, uh, patented pharmaceuticals and make them available to the poor around the world. And the MacGuffin that drives the story is that a batch of pharmaceuticals which she has uh, developed have gone wrong and people are dying and she's trying to interact with that. There's a real caper thing that comes in because she's being chased by the agencies of pharmaceutical co companies and patent uh, you know, people who are trying to stop the anti-patent movement. And also intertwines with a story of a the people who are chasing her. There's a... Um, uh, you know, a, a military a agent and his partner, a indentured robot called Paladin. Uh, and he, you know, there's there's a growing relationship with, with them. There's an awful lot of discussion of gender between them, which is kind of interesting because you have an uh, this artificially intelligent robot, but it hasn't really been given any true agency in its life before a key moment in this story. There's also a really fascinating, and I uh, Nuance has put a lot of work into building up this fascinating, detailed economic structure for the world, and this 
this view that, or this notion, I guess, that in a climate change world where everything is has been gone through vast upheaval, uh, the one thing that will hold, continue to hold value, perhaps, is 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 labor, and the only thing that you can do is, is basically in her world is to indenture yourself. You, you don't have anything else. You indenture yourself to get work, and eventually, you, you know, you move into the main economy. The only flaw for me in it, really, and I think it's a it's a a powerful debut, is that the resolution of the indentured artificial, you know, robot is handled much more fully than I think the resolution of the matter surrounding one an indentured human who's in the in in the story. But I would I would rate it really very highly. What did you think, Gary? I tend to agree. I think one of the things that's interesting about it, you're, you're right. The, the 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 pirate, the pirate utopia thing. It reminds me of Bruce Sterling in the beginning. Uh, it interests me also in that the dealing, the, the treatment of artificial intelligence is, is one. It's, it's really a very traditional theme in science fiction. It's worked out uh, with the latest artificial in, intelligence research, I suppose, that Annalee Newitz has access to. Uh, but essentially, the idea of a robot trying to learn to understand humans, trying to learn to uh, learn empathy, uh, is goes back at least to what uh, Metropolis, probably, and uh, and and yet she she makes it uh, appear fresh. She's I think well aware of the fact that the the idea of a uh, of a robot dealing with humans at Humans' insistence, for example, on genderizing everything makes no sense to the robot at all. Well, that's something I've thought about ever since I read the first robot stories. Why would robots even care about gender? And yet she's the first one to really uh, you know, foreground that in a way that uh, is alternately tragic and, and comic. I think that's very fair. I think she's done uh, an interesting job of it. What's going to be interesting, and this ties back to, again, I suppose, Liz's comments, is there are structural issues with the book, and uh, I'm hopeful that the book she's working on now will see us see her gaining in craft. I think this is an, a really interesting book, if a, a somewhat flawed one. Is it a standalone book? It's a standalone book, yeah. Standalone book. It actually is exactly what I love the most. It's like a, a 300-page standalone book. I'm, I'm, it delights me more than I can say. I, I, I don't you – know, when, when I see an interesting writer who I want to read produce, you know, let's say a 750-page first volume of a trilogy, I do feel a little fatigued in advance, I, I confess. But that's my prejudice, and it's, it's a, an artifact of what, what you were talking about uh, again earlier about the impact of being a, a – committed reader who has to sort of keep an eye on wants to in fact uh which would see me which you all you know, the, the problem with this job is you know you do you know you do read far more than you may, may otherwise and you do you know, you know favor novelty and you're also i think haunted by the books that you never get to as well uh and in fact the thing about <laughs> this discussion i guess is that we have you know i have 140 150 uh, debut novels alone, never mind collections and novellas and everything else. And there are a, you know, a, a very, very strong grouping of those, not the least Sarah Gailey's books over at tour.com and a bunch of others. Uh, and so there's always something you feel like you're missing, you know, sort of when will you get the chance to read this? How, when do I find time to read The Guns Above, which you've talked about, and it actually sounds really intriguing. 
uh, Liz. So, you know, that's sort of a difficulty. Um, the worst thing is I, I, absolutely, I absolutely share that bias against series with 750-page open volumes, and then every so often one of them is The Grace of Kings, which is tremendous, and then mm. you feel, my God, what if they're all that good and I'm missing out on all of them? You raise an interesting point, Neil. One of the things I think those of us who get advanced reading copies of things have to fight through sometimes is the publicity department of the publisher. Uh, And and absolutely, if I get something that says, you know, the first volume in the next wheel of time, which will go on for 30 more volumes, I'm less inclined to read it as if something comes across my desk that says, not since Cheryl and Kenyon. I'm thinking, I have to get past that if I'm going to even read this book. <laughs> well, yep. I, I might just ask quickly, uh, I mean, we've, we've named books, and I'm going to ask you all to f- for lists sort of to run with the podcast a little bit later. So I might sort of segue and say, how do you end up fighting your discovering novel, you know, these, these debuts? Because it's, it's perishingly easy to overlook a book. I've found, I mean, this is obviously the value of somebody like a, like a, I suppose, like, like a Theodora Goss, like a, a Sam Miller. You're familiar with their work. And so, uh, you maybe that, that get you, gets your attention to start off with. But I look at some of the books that have been mentioned, whether it be Amberlo, the Lara Elena Donnelly book, whether it be Crossroads of Canopy by Thorea Dyer, which we've not talked about, but which is well worth attention, whether it be, you know, Catherine Arden's The Bear and the Nightingale. Uh, whether it be Barbary Station, which you mentioned, um, Liz, you know, Ari St- by Ari Stearns, um, there generally have been people that I'm aware of. What me- ha- what what catches your eye? Is it simply you know, a magpie eye attracted to something uh, something shiny? Does Neil want to take this? <laughs> no, I think <laughs> I, I I go after you. <laughs> okay, well. Some of it, Jonathan, is your fault um, because I'm <laughs> because I'm reviewing for Locus now, um, and and I get and and the the some of the books that I've come across have been in, in the course of that. But a lot of it for me is I review for Tor.com as well. But I also write that weekly column, Sleeps with Monsters, which means that I go and I look for for new books. Um, and I look for books specifically by um, by people who aren't men um, because that's what the column is all about um, which means that I spend a lot of my time um, trying rather desperately to keep up because as we have mentioned there are a lot of new books um, and there are even if we're not even if we're only talking about debut novels, there are a lot of new debut novels. Um, so I look for them, and then the ones that I can convince people to send me, so I don't have to spend lots and lots and lots of money keeping up, are generally the ones that I end end up reading and then talking about in the column. So that's kind of how books come to my attention. I'm just looking at. I'm going to miss things here because it's it's a physical pile on the Kindle pile. But I'm looking at the pile of books that I've got next to my laptop for this podcast, which is the pile of debut novels I have acquired this year. And I'm thinking about how I heard about each of them, and they have all come through 
not quite all come through different routes, but there's a variety of different routes in here. So Aberrant, I mentioned, just turned up out of the blue, knew nothing about it. Amatka, um, I heard about because it's the sort of thing that turns up on the locust list of forthcoming books, which I monitor assiduously, as I'm sure we all do. Um, Layla, I heard about because Strange Horizons picked it up for review, which I assume is in part because, you know, they have the staff and kind of the the global reach that allows them to identify a bunch of things that we might not otherwise hear about, which is great. Um, the other one that I was going to talk about but haven't covered is Spaceman of Bohemia by Yaroslav Kalfar, um, which I heard about through kind of mainstream channels. It's published by, in the UK, it's published by Scepter. I'm not sure who the US publisher is, but it's published as a mainstream book. So that kind of came through the mainstream press. I've got a book called The Gatekeeper by Nuralia Norasid, which is published by Singapore publisher Epigram Books, although it has UK distribution as of this month, which is a, a interesting looking fancy. And that came to my attention through uh, Jason Eric Lundberg, who's in Singapore, obviously, and mentioned it on Facebook. I've got uh, Tatey Went West here, which is a first novel, but not a fir- again, not a first novel for our terms because it was technically published in, I think, Kenya in 2015. And now this is the first UK edition, but that's by Nikhil Singh. So I came across that first through Jeff Ryman's 100 African Writers of SF project. And then he was one of the presenters at this year's Hugo Awards and talked a little about, about his book on stage and had a few copies for purchase in Helsinki. So that's how I got that one. So there's, there's this whole range of different routes by which they come to my attention. I would say, I mean, a lot of it, I guess, comes down to word of mouth, but comes down to word of mouth online, which is a different thing, I think, than word of mouth in person. I'm not hearing about these from, you know, the people I know or the people I see regularly so much, occasionally, yes, but I'm hearing about them from interesting people I follow online who are scattered across the world, which is how I've ended up with books from, you know, the Czech Republic, India, Singapore, Kenya, South Africa, all of these different countries. So... For me, at least, there's that dovetail between the thing we talked about right at the start, the range of different types of books and the range of authors that we're now hearing from and the ability of the Internet to bring those to our attention. I have to say that sort of that's kind of my experience. I mean, while you were talking, I was looking, sort of running my eye down this list of of, of books, which uh, is sitting out, out online at the moment and I'll link across to. And what strikes me most it it feels that you're in danger of cliche here but what does strike me is variety variety of publication source variety of voices variety of countries involved you know we're now moving to a stage where well i feel that at least what i see you're more likely to see a great first novel from from south africa or a great first novel from Canada, or a great first novel from Czechoslovakia, or a great first novel from Singapore or Thailand. And that's a tremendously encouraging thing. Uh, I feel that that's... But it's also a somewhat overwhelming thing in terms of keeping up. So, Gary, how would you perhaps move to summarise talking about first novels for, for the year so far? Well, one thing I wanted to add to, um, to what we've just been uh, talking about, uh, how, how these things come to our attention, is that we're all aware of the fact that within the field, there have been a number of, of smaller presses that have introduced a lot of important um, writers to the field. I think the other thing, which is a little bit harder to become aware of, are the small presses that are not particularly uh, devoted to fantastic literature. I got a couple of books this year simply because somebody would email me uh, and say, can we send you this book from pub- from publishers I'd never heard of? 
And I'm going to mention uh, two titles that haven't been mentioned before because they're publishers that aren't really familiar with how to get books in the front of um, science fiction and fantasy readers. One is a small publisher called $2 Radio, uh, published an interesting, not entirely successful, but a very conceptually interesting novel by uh, N.J. Campbell called Found Audio, uh, which is uh, one of these nested Kafka-esque stories within stories and within stories uh, that uh, clearly moves into the elements of fantasy, but clearly uh, comes from an author and, as far as I can tell, a publisher that uh, that barely knows how to get it before us. Uh, another one uh, was a small publisher called The Unnamed Press, and I'm sure I'm going to butcher this name, an author named Deji Bryce Olukutan, um, who had not a first novel, although it's, a, it's one of as something as Neil had said, it's a first science fiction novel. The first novel by this author was actually called Nigerians in Space, even though there were no Nigerians in space in it, and it wasn't really science fiction. This one is. It's called After the Flare. So I think that uh, we more or less do have to keep our eye out for for uh, first novels that may have fantastic elements, but that are marketed and published essentially as as non-genre work. Uh, that being said, uh, I, I noticed that a lot of the novels we've mentioned today have been published by uh, very conscientiously uh, genre-savvy publishers like Tor or Tor.com or Orbit or Saga, uh, so that uh, th- there, there is a sense now, I think, that there are publishers out there who are enthusiastic about discovering uh, talent, and this, and enthusiastic about discovering new voices. I may be being a little bit optimistic about that, uh, but I see a lot of support for um, uh, f- for innovative, newer, younger writers uh, f- on the part of publishers than there might have been in, in many years past. I don't know if I think there's more support for them, Gary, as much as this is one of those industries where it's always whatever you can put in the front of it a little bit. And I think, you know, there's a huge hunger for, for the next thing. And of course, science fiction itself is this hunger, as Liz was talking about earlier about the hunger for the new, for the novel. And sometimes the thirst for novelty makes you overlook the really well crafted, but perhaps more center of the genre kind of a book. But I'm going to just wind up maybe perhaps by asking you all one question, uh, and that would be, what is the debate debut that you've not read yet that you're most eager to get your hands on? I know I've not fed that, but just to be unfair, I'll maybe lead off to give you a moment to think about it, because the book I want to get a hold of is Chris Nakashima Brown's book, uh, Tropic of Kansas, which is an apocalyptic science fiction novel set in a wasteland DMZ kind of thing, right in the, in the middle of, um, of the United States. And it was recommended to me very, very highly. And I'm really sort of fascinated to sort of see what kind of a book it is on the ground. The cover didn't grab me. In fact, I didn't even realize that Christopher Brown initially was Chris Nakashima Brown, who's been around the field for, for some time. So... And that's what I'm looking for. What about you, Liz? What are you going to likely to tr- you know, track down? Well, um, I believe I've already mentioned Barbary okay. Station. Yes, yeah. Um, and that, and um, probably K. Or- K. Arsenal Rivera's The Tiger's Daughter, um, which was described to me as a Central Asian epic fantasy. Um, 
so about about a warrior and a divine empress in waiting. So I'm quite um, quite eager to see what that's that's going to look like. Fair enough. And what about you, Neil? Anything in particular on your radar? I mean, I've, I've mentioned The Rivers of Solomon, which is mm-hmm. now out. Obviously, I have to get hold of Theodora Goss's book um, as soon as I possibly can. Uh, I suppose of books that I haven't mentioned, and you mentioned the Chris Brown, which I'm also very interested in, um, books that have not been mentioned yet that I also have not read yet. Uh, I will go for An American War by Omar el Akkad, which looks like a quite another, well, looks like an interesting pairing with the Chris Brown book, actually, mm-hmm. because it's another near future US that's disintegrating slightly. In this case, I believe another civil war um, with a background of climate change again. Um, but the reviews have suggested that it has quite interesting voice and quite interesting development within it. So I'm, I'm keen to get to that. Excellent. And how about you, Gary? What would you, what would you mention? Oh, well, I'm going to mention something I know nothing about because it just came in the mail a couple of days ago. And it's a, it's a, if, you, if any of you know about it, uh, let me know. Um, because this sort of approach avoidance thing I get with new novels that come unsolicited in the mail. This is a novel called The Forest of a Thousand Lanterns by Julie Dow. It's a debut novel, uh, which makes it interesting, by a Vietnamese-American writer. Uh, but on the other hand... Blazing across the cover, this is actually a finished copy, uh, is a Rise of the Empress novel. Now, that suggests to me there are going to be lots of Rise of the Empress. And you look on the title page, it says Rise of the Empress, book one. And my immediate thought is, I want to find out what this voice sounds like. This could be a terrific book. But does volume one mean that there's going to be a volume 12? That's what makes me hesitate. We might think about think too much, Gary. Sometimes you just have to read the book, don't you? Sometimes you have to read the book, and sometimes I mean, well, a good example of um, I, I think a a book that I'm looking forward to, which is a continuation of a book. There are we've mentioned the Dora Goss book, for example, the strange case of the alchemist's daughter, which we haven't described it in much detail, but it involves basically uh, looking at a at a group of women who are descended from, or related to, or created by classic 19th century uh, fictional mad scientist, Frankenstein, Dr. Moreau. Uh, one of the things that seems anomalous in that novel is that, that several references to Dracula appear in it. There, apart from that, all the references, all the literary sort of uh, superstructure of the novel is, is, is 19th century science fiction. So my thought was, okay, Dracula doesn't fit into this as well as everything else does, but then Dora assures us that that's going to be clarified in the second volume. So there are there are novels where I want to read second and third volumes because they're going to clarify and expand and not simply continue. Uh, but you never know that in advance. You, you, you're right. You have to read the first book in a series to find out if you're really going to want to read the, the fourth or fifth book in a series. I think what I like is that there's a lot... It feels just like a, a really robust year to be talking about science fiction again, and that encourages me. 
Uh, it encourages me with the book we've been talking about. There's actually quite a lot of science fiction around at a time when I have felt there's been more fantasy out. And there's nothing wrong at all with fantasy. I love a great fantasy novel. But I'm also delighted to see strong uh, you know, science fiction debuts. So I think it's you know, it's going to be interesting to see where we are come recommended reading, something that, we'll, that, that you know we will all in our own ways, I guess, be beginning to sort of wind through in some way in the coming few months. But for the moment, I would like to thank both of you very much for taking the time to join us this afternoon, evening, and morning. So thank you very much, Liz. <laughs> and thank you very thank much, you Jonathan. Ne- and thank you, Gary. And thank you very much, Neil. It's been wonderful to finally get you on, on, you on the podcast. And Gary, I guess for us it'll be another week next week. Next week, another Good Street podcast.